This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 160th episode of the program. Today is September 20th, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors who signed up just this last week to support the program. And that includes Dale Simpson, Dino Costi, Ken Murillo, Savage J4Y, Stars Girl 04, and Alial Hashel. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the program, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's episode, I am happy to be back because we've got quite a bit of stuff to talk about that happened over the course of the last week and a half. So first, we'll talk about Brett Kavanaugh and why simply delaying the vote to confirm him is not enough. Also on the program, Donald Trump erases thousands of deaths in Puerto Rico in order to save face. John Bolton essentially declares that the United States is above the law. A right-wing YouTuber exposes hucksters on the right. We'll talk about Blair White. Jake Tapper concerned trolls once again over the cost of Medicare for All. The Washington Post comes to the defense of their owner, Jeff Bezos, in a mind-numbingly stupid hit piece on Bernie Sanders' new Stop Bezos bill. A new study confirms that AT&T and Verizon are already throttling Netflix and YouTube just months after the repeal of net neutrality. Ajit Pai attacked California's brand new net neutrality law. Bill Maher actually gave Democrats some pretty good advice for the first time in years, possibly. Ted Cruz stoops to a new low, even for him, in an effort to thwart his progressive challenger, Beto O'Rourke. Andrew Cuomo did a victory lap after he defeated progressive challenger Cynthia Nixon and decided to give progressives the middle finger. And finally on the program, we'll talk about the heartbreaking story of Botham John and how he was smeared after a cop killed him in his own apartment. So that's what we've got on the agenda for today's show. Let's go ahead and get to it because we've got actually quite a bit. No guests for today, but that's coming in the following weeks, hopefully. So I hope you guys all enjoy the program. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez recently appeared on CNN for an interview with Jake Tapper and At this point, I really don't think I even need to give you the setup. He asked her the question that corporate media pundits always ask to individuals who are promoting Medicare for All. How do you pay for it? Now, keep in mind that we never hear this question being posed to Republicans and even Democrats who promote war, who say that we should invade Iran and even North Korea. It's always for policies that specifically benefit the American people. Which is when they ask this question. So you probably already know how this interview is going to go, how the exchange is going to pan out. But nonetheless, we'll watch it anyway. And I have quite a bit to say about it when we come back. The platform has called for various new programs, including 
Medicare for all, housing as a federal right, a federal jobs guarantee, tuition-free public college, canceling all student loan debt. Um, according to nonpartisan and left-leaning studies friendly to your cause, including the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities or the Tax Policy Center, the overall price tag is more than $40 trillion in the next decade. You recently said in an interview that increasing taxes on the very wealthy plus an increased corporate tax rate would make $2 trillion over the next 10 years. So where is the other $38 trillion going to come from? Well, one of the things that we need to realize when we look at something like Medicare for All, Medicare for All would save the American people a very large amount of money. And what we see as well is that these systems are not just uh, pie in the sky. They are, many of them are accomplished by every modern civilized democracy in the Western world. The United, uh, the United Kingdom has a form of single-payer health care. Canada, France, Germany. What we need to realize is that these investments are better and they are good for our future. These are generational investments so that not just, they're not short-term band-aids, but they are really profound decisions about who we want to be as a nation and, as, and how we want to act as the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. So yeah, that was probably what you expected, but it still doesn't get any less angering because if corporate media pundits really wanted to be fair and neutral as CNN tries to do, or at least purports it tries to do, they would ask the same question for other politicians when it comes to other policies like tax cuts for the rich and whatnot. But they only concern troll, Jake Tapper specifically only concern trolls over the cost of policies when it comes to Medicare for all. And he also throwed up her other policies on the screen like tuition-free public colleges and universities. I mean, it's 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 bias. It's a double standard. And the way that he even set up the question was just disingenuous because he claims that left-leaning organizations actually came up with this figure, but really he made that figure up. And additionally, the organizations that he cited, like the Mercatus Center, they're not left-leaning. They're funded by the Koch brothers. They're the antithesis of progressivism. So obviously there's going to be a slant there against Medicare for All. It was set up to be a hit piece against Medicare for All. So you can't cite them and claim that they're objective if you want to appear neutral because you are doing the bidding of not just these organizations who are against Medicare for All, but CNN's advertisers, which is why we all know he's biased, right? Because CNN gets paid by the pharmaceutical industry, so they have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. And also, personally, Jake Tapper doesn't want his taxes to go up, which would result, because he's a multimillionaire, if we got Medicare for All. So certainly he's going to be personally against it, because he doesn't have to see the people who are dying and going bankrupt if they don't have health care or if they're underinsured, so out of sight, out of mind. He doesn't give a fuck about it. But let's get to what he said here. The way he framed the question was incredibly misleading. He states, where's the other $38 trillion going to come from? And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez correctly states, Medicare for all would save the American people a very large amount of money. Now, I just went over this in a nearly hour-long video with Andrea Witt of Connect the Dot USA, and a substantial portion of that increase, as she explains, in federal spending basically comes down to a reallocation of resources, of money that we're already spending in the private sector. And also, when you take current government-run healthcare programs like Medicaid, CHIP, the Affordable Care Act, and you reallocate that money towards Medicare for all, well, we take what we're already spending on healthcare and we apply that to Medicare for all. It comes down to a reallocation of resources, money that we're already spending on a system 
that would save Americans trillions of dollars that would be personally beneficial to the overwhelming majority of Americans. But he doesn't frame it that way. He's incredibly disingenuous and he knows what he's doing. And after you've reallocated the resources necessary to pay for Medicare for All, well, the way that you raise that additional revenue is with a 3 to 6% payroll tax, a 6% tax on capital gains, and a small transaction tax on Wall Street, and you pay for Medicare for All that way. It's actually really simple. And not only would households that make less than $200,000 per year save anywhere between $4,000 and $9,000, but Medicare for All itself is cheaper because it's more efficient administratively. And not only that, it's easier for normal Americans because not only are they going to have more money in their pockets if we transition to a Medicare for All system, but they don't have to deal with the headaches of filling out paperwork. They don't have to worry about finding a new insurance provider if they lose their jobs because your healthcare would no longer be tied to your employer. I mean, there's a ton of benefits. There's a plethora of benefits. But the most important reason as to why we should move to Medicare for all, in spite of whatever the price tag might be, is because it is moral. It's the morally justifiable thing to do. And... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I think, did a phenomenal job at making the moral case for Medicare for All, but because she didn't give Jake Tapper a dollar-for-dollar breakdown as to how she's going to pay for it, well, he wasn't satisfied. So if you don't come prepared to explain exactly how Medicare for All is going to work financially and how it's going to be paid for down to the last cent, Jake Tapper is not going to be happy with you. And he actually decided to press her a little bit further on this issue. And towards the end of the clip... He's going to take his condescension to a whole new level that just completely pissed me off. Right, now I, I get that, but uh, you, the price tag for everything that you've laid out in your campaign is $40 trillion over the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, I understand that Medicare for All uh, would cost more to some wealthier people uh, and to the government and to taxpayers while also reducing individual health care expenditures, but I'm talking about the overall package you say it's not pie in the sky but 40 trillion dollars is quite a bit of money uh and the the taxes that you talked about raising to pay for this to pay for your agenda only count for two and i'm, I'm we're going by left-leaning uh mm -hmm. analysts right well when you look again at again how our health care works currently we pay much of these costs go into the private sector so what we see is for example you know, a year ago, I was working downtown in a restaurant. I, I went around and I asked how many of you folks have health insurance? Not a single person did because these, they were paying, they would have had to have paid $200 a month uh, for, for a payment for insurance that, that had an $8,000 yeah. deductible. What these represent are lower costs overall for these programs. And additionally, what this is, is a broader agenda. We do know and we acknowledge that there are political realities. They don't always happen with just the wave of a wand, but we can work to make these things happen. And in fact, when, we, when you look at the economic activity that it spurs, for example, uh, if you look at my generation, millennials, mm -hmm. the amount amount of, of economic activity that we do not engage in, the fact that we delay purchasing homes, that we don't participate in the economy and purchasing cars, etc., as fully as possible, is a cost. It is a, a, an externality, if you will, of, of unprecedented, unprecedented amounts so of student loan debt. I'm assuming I'm not going to get an answer for the other $38 trillion, but we'll have you back and, and maybe we can go over that. I mean, he is so condescending, and this is propaganda in its purest form we're gonna tax people like you jake tapper people who have millions of dollars i think that the fact that you're making that much money well you can look out for americans who are socioeconomically disadvantaged and pay a slightly higher tax rate 
to fund Medicare for All. And again, it comes down to a reallocation of resources. We're already paying a shit ton of money on healthcare. So re we reallocate those, those resources and we simply have a payroll tax. We have a tax on capital gains, uh, a small financial transaction tax on Wall Street, and it's that easy. But again, I don't even care how we pay for it. What matters is we have that policy because it is morally repugnant to think that people are dying and going bankrupt in this country currently if they have insurance or if they're underinsured. It's unacceptable. And the fact that he doesn't care about that speaks volumes to the type of person that Jake Tapper is. He's a rich elitist prick and he doesn't care about those lower on the totem pole because he has a corporate agenda. And think about this. Republicans exploded the deficit last year in order to give trillions of dollars in tax cuts to the rich. Did Jake Tapper press every single Republican this hard about how they're going to pay for that? Does he ask warmongers like John Bolton how they're going to pay for the ongoing wars and expansion of the U.S. empire? Well, of course he never asks this, and to be fair, it's not just Jake Tapper. It's pretty much everyone in the mainstream media, even so-called liberal news pundits, yes, because the media is so liberal. It's such a hilarious joke at this point to assert that the media is liberal. This is a conservative position. In fact, I'd say being against Medicare for All is a far-right position because when you go to other countries, even right-wing parties like conservatives in the UK are in favor of keeping their national health system. So to be against Medicare for All, that's a far-right position and it's also antithetical to what the American people want. 51% of Republicans now support Medicare for All because if you're against it, you're just irrational. So to be against it is... It says a lot about the individual, right? I don't want to make a value judgment on Jake Tapper's character here, but I'm sorry. If you never ask how we're going to pay for wars, but you only pose this question as to how we're going to pay for policies when it comes to Medicare for all and things that help the American people, then your priorities are completely ass backwards. And understand that this is a double standard. When it comes to bombing civilians in the Middle East and North Africa, government, Republicans, you know, they don't have to explain to us how they're going to pay for it. They put wars on the credit card. They increase the military budget all the time. They never have to justify how they're going to pay for it or even morally justify why that's necessary. But Medicare for all, again, you better explain down to the penny how we can afford that. See, the thing about there's there's a lot of talk about modern monetary theory that's going around. And I absolutely find this argument persuasive because Republicans, if you think about it, they already... They apply modern monetary theory when they get into power because they pass tax cuts for the rich, they pass wars, and they just explode the deficit. They don't find a way to pay for it. They don't do policymaking in a way that's deficit neutral because they don't care. It's only Democrats who are expected, and liberals really generally speaking, who are expected to create policies and legislate in a way that always turns out deficit neutral. You see this with Nancy Pelosi. She's trying to pass PAYGO so that way the Democratic Party's hands are tied and they can't pass a policy unless it specifically states how they're going to pay for it. I mean, it's a complete double standard. Again, if there's policies that are harmful to people around the world, that's A-OK. -okay. If there's policies that help the American people, that's unacceptable. Your tax dollars are not allowed to help you. Your tax dollars are only allowed to fund tax cuts for the rich and wars, according to mainstream media. So this was absolutely despicable. And whatever little ounce of respect I had for Jake Tapper, it's certainly diminishing over the past you know, um, month or so after he's just been relentlessly attacking Medicare for all because it shows how full of shit he is. He has an agenda.
he got called out for his misleading, uh, quite frankly, disingenuous fact check on Medicare for All, and now I think he's probably butthurt, and he's lashing out against progressives, and he's trying to prove himself right, but all he's doing is shilling for the pharmaceutical industry, and really, it's, it's despicable, it's loathsome. Bernie Sanders recently unveiled his bill that aims to end corporate welfare for companies like Amazon and Walmart. And being the BAMF that he is, he literally named this the Stop Bezos Act, which stands for Stop Bad Employers by Zeroing Out Subsidies Act. Now, what this bill does is it incentivizes multi-billion dollar companies like Walmart and Amazon to actually pay their workers a living wage, because if their workers aren't paid a living wage, then what happens? They're forced to resort to food stamps to feed themselves and welfare. But if that happens, then under this bill, these companies will then be forced to reimburse the government for every single dollar that is spent of taxpayer money by their employees on these programs. Because if Amazon's workers are forced to live off of welfare if they're not being paid a living wage, well then that's called corporate welfare because the American taxpayer is forced to foot the rest of the bill for Amazon, who is just being greedy. It's corporate welfare. But in spite of this being a really phenomenal idea, once it was unveiled, the bill drew almost universal condemnation. We have headlines from the USA Today, for example, that says, In Bernie Sanders versus Amazon's Jeff Bezos, only workers lose. And then the Wall Street Journal idiotically says, Stop Bezos from hiring poor people? Bernie Sanders' latest brainstorm would make the transition from welfare to work more difficult. And then by far the dumbest headline we got came from the Washington Post, titled Bernie Sanders' First Step to Democratic Socialism, Privatizing It. And in case you already didn't know, Amazon's CEO is Jeff Bezos, who also happens to own the Washington Post. So clearly, there's a conflict of interest there. Now, before we dive into the details here, I just want to take a moment to reflect on just how idiotic that title really is, because this author is trying to frame Bernie's plans to boost workers out of poverty as trying to privatize democratic socialism. I mean, that, that logic is just idiotic. I don't know how else to explain it. So that kind of gives you a hint as to what you can expect from this author. But nonetheless, let's go ahead and dive into the details. And as you're going to see, the author of this article goes to great lengths to defend his employer. In fact, I shouldn't call him a, an author. I should call him a hack because that's what he is. So he argues, in an advanced industrial democracy like the United States, who should bear primary responsibility for ensuring an adequate social safety net and a reasonable level of economic equality. Strangely enough, Senator Bernie Sanders, the once and possibly future presidential candidate, thinks that's a job for corporate America. Who would have thought the first step on the road to democratic socialism would be to privatize it? He says the plan would prevent giant corporations run by plutocrats such as Amazon's Jeffrey P. Bezos, owner of the Post, from passing the tab for their unpaid employees well-being to the government, corporate welfare, Sanders calls it. Now, I just want to stop right there because simply disclosing really quickly so in parentheses that Jeff Bezos is the owner of the Post, that's not enough. There should be a gigantic disclaimer before any words are written in this article saying just how strong this conflict of interest is because this is the definition of a conflict of interest. I mean, there's real bias here. This is the definition of bias. But yet, in parentheses, that's all we get. Oh, Bezos is also the owner of the Post, by the way. 
That's not enough. If you truly want to be a journalist with integrity, put a disclaimer at the top of the article so at least we know where you're coming from. But of course, this individual has an agenda. He probably not only aligns with Jeff Bezos politically, but he is doing the bidding of his employer. And I'm not saying that Jeff Bezos ordered this person to write this article, but we all know that, you know, if you do something that your employer would obviously approve of, then you're going to earn some brownie points. So why not do some propaganda in hopes of furthering your own career? So let's get back into the argument because there's more here. He continues saying, It's an interesting new role for Sanders, tribune of taxpayer resentment, and it has led to a certain left-right populist fusion with Tucker Carlson of Fox News echoing the Vermont senator on his show. Yet, as others, including the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, a liberal Washington think tank that specializes in poverty-related issues, have pointed out, the Sanders plan would be counterproductive, a huge disincentive to hire poor people possessing only entry-level job skills, and for a poor person with entry-level job skills, the only thing worse than working for $10 an hour at a Walmart and relying on food stamps and Medicaid would be having no job and relying on food stamps and Medicaid. If there's a taxpayer subsidy going to the Walmarts and Amazons of the world, it is also a subsidy to their lower-income customers because holding down labor costs enables them to sell goods more cheaply. Sanders wants to outsource even more of the fight against poverty to, well, Bezos. Bezos is good at many things. Did I mention he pays my salary? As a businessman whose shareholders depend on him to meet the demand for low-cost consumer goods, however, he's not well-positioned to produce public goods. And equality and a decent safety net, like a working court system and national defense, are public goods. Public goods are government's forte, and our social policy should reflect that. Rather than pile more and more complex rules and regulations on private job creators, as France, to its economic and social detriment has done, we should use public resources directly to correct for the socially suboptimal results that the private market sometimes produces. So his argument essentially is that all socialism is good, even socialism for large multinational corporations. And understand the reasoning here. He is implying pretty explicitly so that Jeff Bezos not paying his workers a living wage and then having to have taxpayers pick up the tab, that that's a public good. That's not what a public good is. That's not... That's... <laughs> I'm, the meme is coming to mind. That word doesn't mean what you think it is. It doesn't. What this comes down to is greed. Jeff Bezos is not paying his workers a living wage, not because he's not good at that, not because he's not good at delivering public goods and that that's government's fortes. The reason why he's not paying his workers a living wage is because he is the epitome of greed. He is the richest man on the planet who could end global hunger in a heartbeat. But he doesn't do it. Why? Because he's greedy. So this just comes down to greed. You are the one who decided to invoke this discussion of public goods. And we all agree that, yes, it is the case that the government is better at providing public goods. He's he's using this argument to try to get socialists who would otherwise be inclined to support Bernie Sanders on his side. But understand that it's a sleight of hand here. He's bullshitting you. He's changing the conversation away from Jeff Bezos's greed and on to, well, who should be providing for the people? It's the government. So he's trying to get you to agree with him. And what he's trying to do here is a quick bait and switch. And overall, he makes two main claims that I want to address. So the first one is that he says, in the event Bernie Sanders' Stop Bezos Act was codified into law, first, this would stop companies like Amazon and Walmart from hiring poor people. He also says these companies will pass off the cost 
of these higher wages onto consumers. So when it comes to the first claim that this will stop companies like Amazon and Walmart from hiring low-wage workers, my response is, no, it won't because they don't have a choice. Half of Americans couldn't come up with $400 in the event of an emergency. Almost 80% of workers live paycheck to paycheck. The richest three Americans hold more wealth than the bottom 50% of the country. You don't have a goddamn choice. Capitalism has sucked the wealth out of America in order to give just a few elites all of that money. So if you want to exist, you have to hire poor people. So by saying, oh, well, you know, this is a, this is going to lead to Amazon just hiring wealthy people. That is such an idiotic argument that you can just dismiss at face value. Now, he also claims that companies are just going to pass the cost of higher wages onto consumers. Now, this is the same exact argument we hear made every time when the minimum wage is brought up. Well, we can't raise the minimum wage because then the prices are gonna go up. But in a capitalistic system where corporations have a fiduciary responsibility to maximize shareholder value, they're always going to raise prices at every single chance they get, regardless if they're forced to pay workers higher wages. If they think that people would pay $10 for a banana, then bananas would suddenly be $10. The problem is as prices rise and inflation increases, workers' wages remain stagnant. So it's not like the prices of goods would have to increase in order to keep up with wages. Wages need to be increased in order to keep up with inflation. So the author of this argument is either dumb or disingenuous, but knowing who signs his check, I think we all can clearly say confidently so it's the latter. So this has got to be one of the more dumber attacks that I've seen on Bernie Sanders. And again, as I alluded to at the beginning of this segment, there were more attacks. We saw, you know, USA Today and Wall Street Journal unsurprisingly condemning this. But there were other individuals saying, oh, this is going to have the opposite effect of what Bernie Sanders wants because the, you know, the cost of goods is just going to increase and then poor people, they won't be able to get jobs. So they're trying to convince poor people to be against their own interests. But notice how if you actually ask a worker at Amazon and Walmart if they'd prefer to have a higher wage, nine times out of 10, if not higher, they'd tell you, of course I want a living wage. Of course I want a higher wage. What are we talking about here? This is propaganda. This is the idea that trickle-down economics work, uh, works and if you question it, then you're wrong. But no, sorry. That's not the way this works. We all know that we're getting a raw deal. We all know that trickle-down economics is bullshit. And by you trying to make this argument, we know that you're not being a genuine actor here. You're doing it at the behest of your employer because you're a political hack. You should be ashamed of yourself. When it comes to Brett Kavanaugh, I'm not even sure where to begin at this point because this entire process has been a complete and utter disaster. This individual obviously should not be on the Supreme Court, but nonetheless, we're still talking about him as if he's a legitimate judicial scholar when that's clearly not the case. So not only did he dodge incredibly important questions that we need to hear him answer, whether or not the president has the power to pardon himself or whether or not he'd vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, chalking these questions up to hypotheticals, we recently learned that he might have possibly committed perjury or misled the Senate at a minimum on five different occasions. And on Friday, the New Yorker published a bombshell story detailing an allegation 
of sexual misconduct against Kavanaugh by an accuser we now know to be Christine Blasey Ford, a psychology professor. And she alleges that when Brett Kavanaugh was in high school, she attended a party with him and he attempted to rape her, basically. He held her down, tried to force himself on her, and when she tried to protest and scream, he put his hand over her mouth. And really, these allegations are very, very serious. And they're credible, too, because these are allegations that her therapist actually corroborated, saying she discussed this in sessions in 2012, and Christine contends that dealing with this has been incredibly painful, especially since, you know, he's been in the media nonstop lately, obviously, due to confirmation hearings. And in response to these allegations, Kavanaugh said this, I categorically and unequivocally deny this allegation. I did not do this back in high school or at any time. And his friend, who was also in the room with him at the time, claimed, I have no recollection of that. Now, a good point that Megan Kelly made about this, that Jen Uger echoed on the Young Turks, is that these are especially credible allegations because if you're just making something up, you wouldn't assert that there was another witness in the room at the time, but she's sticking by her allegations. These were corroborated by her therapist and they're very serious. I believe her. Now, this is where the story gets a little bit more strange because in response to these allegations, on the exact same day, 65 women wrote a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee vouching for Kavanaugh's character. So, I mean, he was either tipped off by the New Yorker's request for a comment or he knew that these allegations would come to light sooner or later. And additionally, his accuser gave her testimony to Dianne Feinstein back in July since she's a ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And rather than publicizing these accusations, Dianne Feinstein just chose to sit on them, not release them to the public, which doesn't make any sense to me. She claims that the reason why she didn't make these allegations public after Christine Ford wrote her this letter is because she was trying to protect the identity of Christine Ford, who did want to remain anonymous at the time. And also, she states that she didn't want right-wingers to launch a smear campaign. But certainly, in writing this letter to Dianne Feinstein, obviously Christine Ford wanted it to be known that this happened. So the fact that Dianne Feinstein presumably chose to ignore the will of Kavanaugh's accuser and just sit on this information, I think it's completely unacceptable. Now, when it comes to Christine Ford, she's decided to speak out in spite of the pain that this would obviously cause and testify against Kavanaugh. And this is confirmed by her lawyer as well in an interview on CNN recently. Will your client, Christine Ford, be willing to testify in public to the Judiciary Committee? The answer is yes. She is willing to do it. Has she been asked by any of the lawmakers to do that? That's interesting. The answer is no. So this is a very serious situation for Kavanaugh. Very, very serious. It puts his confirmation in jeopardy, as it should. I mean... He shouldn't be confirmed to begin with, but this certainly throws everything up in the air. And immediately when these allegations surfaced, Democrats called on a delay for the vote, which was supposed to be this Thursday. It's since been delayed. And it got so serious that even Donald Trump floated the possibility of a delay himself. I'd like to see a complete process. I'd like everybody to uh, be very happy. Most importantly, I want the American people to be happy because they're getting somebody that is great. I want him to go in at the absolute highest level. And I think to do that, you have to go through this. If it takes a little delay, it'll take a little delay. 
uh, it shouldn't certainly be very much. Now, you might see Donald Trump say that and think, oh, well, you know, is he actually being reasonable here for once? No, because when you go just a few seconds into the future in that clip, you'll see that he was being completely unreasonable and still stood by Kavanaugh. With all of that being said, uh, it will, I'm sure, work out very well. You're talking about a an individual who is as high a quality individual as you'll ever see. Are okay. you meeting him today? I have not spoken to uh, Judge Kavanaugh. Do you no. know if he's offered to withdraw from the process? Has he offered to withdraw? Uh, next question. What a ridiculous question. That is. Do you think his passport confirmation is on track? Oh, I think he's on track, yeah. I mean, I think he's very much on track. If they delay it a little bit just to make sure everybody's happy, they want to be happy. I, I can tell you, the Republican senators want to be 100% happy themselves. Uh, they're doing it very, very professionally. Again, this should have been brought up a long time ago. Thank you. What a ridiculous question. Why would you even ask me whether or not Kavanaugh has offered to withdraw his nomination when only one accuser has come forward. I mean, look at me. I had 16 women come forward and I still went on to become president. So why would he withdraw after just one accuser coming forward? I mean, Trump is insane. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how else to put it. He is simply insane. And his reality is completely different than the reality that we all live in. Now, the thing I think that frustrates me the most is that initially when these allegations came out, uh, Democrats called on the vote to be delayed. Now, that's not really a change from the beginning. They were calling on it to be delayed until after the midterm elections at first because they were claiming, look, isn't it the fact that just a couple of years ago, Republicans stole a Supreme Court nominee from Obama? So maybe it's the case that we should wait and allow the American people to make their decision. So after saying that it should be delayed, they didn't move the goalpost at all. They simply said, well, now that these allegations come forward, it should definitely been delayed. And people in the media, they're just simply saying it should be delayed. And now we all got what we wanted. The vote was delayed. But the problem is the goalpost should have been moved substantially after that. The vote should have been canceled altogether. Brett Kavanaugh should not be confirmed. You throw this nominee in the garbage can and you say, Trump, sorry, but you've got to come up with someone else. Because it's not just like this should be uh, disqualifying in and of itself, but he is constitutionally illiterate. This is an individual who thinks that the NSA should be able to spy on Americans without a warrant. So he completely disregards the Fourth Amendment. He thinks that net neutrality is unconstitutional. Basic regulations. Government is not allowed to do that. It's unconstitutional in his view. I mean, this individual is a joke, and also, he committed perjury, potentially. Why are we not looking further into that? If simply you can't even follow the law yourself, then you shouldn't be making decisions with regard to the law and the Constitution. So, I don't get how this didn't automatically move the goalpost. The conversation that we should have been having after these allegations surfaced wasn't whether or not it should be delayed, because I think that's a relatively easy goal to accomplish, which maybe was why they were pushing for it, but we should have been talking about canceling this vote, canning this nomination, and Donald Trump picking someone else. Because maybe you won't persuade anyone, and persuade Donald Trump certainly, which is what matters most, to withdraw this, or for Brett Kavanaugh to withdraw this, but if you at least float that idea, you might circulate that idea in media and pundits on CNN, MSNBC, and even Fox News might be talking about the possibility of cancellation. But since 
Nobody really brought this up. Nobody's really talking about it, which is such a missed opportunity to say the least. This is an individual that should have never been considered to begin with, again, because he doesn't base his judicial decisions off of a driving principle or philosophy that's evident. He's a partisan hack, and he rules based on what the Republican Party wants. And the possibility of him allowing a president to pardon himself is why Donald Trump would never even question withdrawing Kavanaugh, because he wants someone who's going to say, yes, a president can pardon himself, which basically makes the president above the law. And I'm not saying that simply calling on the vote to be canceled altogether and for Brett Kavanaugh to withdraw his nomination, it should be the number one thing that everyone's talking about. I'm not saying that that would work. Because there's actually precedent for this. Back in 1991, Anita Hill came forward with sexual harassment allegations against Justice Clarence Thomas. And we all know what happened because there's justice in front of his name. He's now on the Supreme Court. So it might not have even mattered because Clarence Thomas was still confirmed in a 52 to 48 vote. So I'm not saying that this would be an effective strategy. But the fact that we didn't even talk about or mention the idea of forcing or putting pressure on Trump and Kavanaugh to withdraw this nomination. I mean, if you want to delay the vote on any Supreme Court justice that Donald Trump is going to put forward, nothing will delay it more than making him get back to the drawing board and go through his shortlist again and pick someone else. So if you're a scumbag, if you're a political hack with no regard for the Constitution, it doesn't matter because canceling the vote won't even be part of the national discussion and instead people will simply be satisfied with the fact that it was delayed. But he shouldn't fail to be confirmed due to a delay or even due to an insufficient number of votes. He shouldn't be confirmed because the vote shouldn't take place altogether, ever. He should withdraw his nomination. Donald Trump should be forced to name someone else. But I mean, since we've collectively lowered the bar in America, I wouldn't be surprised at this point if he's still confirmed with flying colors. I mean, <laughs> I still think it's likely, right? Because we'll hear Christine Ford testify. We'll hear Kavanaugh testify and Republicans still have the vote and they'll say, eh, it's his word against hers. Meh. Approve. <sighs> it's such a frustrating time to, um, be an observer of American politics because nothing ever goes the way that is beneficial to the American people. And if I'm wrong, I'll be delighted, but I have a feeling he's still going to get confirmed. Last year, Hurricane Maria killed nearly 3,000 Puerto Ricans. Now, for those of you who don't know, that's a death toll that exceeds Hurricane Katrina and even 9-11. Now, part of the reason why so many people died was because of Donald Trump's botched response, if you can even call it a response. But nonetheless, this is how he thinks he did with regard to Hurricane Maria. Puerto Rico was an incredible, unsung success. 3,000 people died, and he called it an incredible, unsung success. I don't even know what to say about that. What a disgusting, lying piece of shit. Now, he wasn't done there. I mean, he wasn't stuttering. You heard him clearly. But he also patted himself on the back 
via Twitter. So on September 12th, he tweeted, We got A-pluses for our recent hurricane work in Texas and Florida and did an unappreciated great job in Puerto Rico, even though an inaccessible island with very poor electricity and a totally incompetent mayor of San Juan, we are ready for the big one that is coming. So clearly he was talking about his, his responses to other hurricanes, but for the most part, he said that he did a great job in Puerto Rico, which is just, <laughs> it's absurd. It's an affront to reality. So people responded, obviously, by saying, how in the fuck can you claim that you did a great job with a straight face when 3,000 Puerto Ricans are now dead because of your botched response? And this is his response to that. 3,000 people did not die in the two hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico. When I left the island after the storm had hit, they had anywhere from 6 to 18 deaths. As time went by, it did not go up by much. Then, a long time later, they started to report really large numbers, like 3,000. This was done by the Democrats in order to make me look as bad as possible when I was successfully raising billions of dollars to help rebuild Puerto Rico. If a person died for any reason, like old age, just add them onto the list. Bad politics. I love Puerto Rico. Actually, Democrats did not fabricate that number. The governor of Puerto Rico, one of your allies, is the individual that commissioned George Washington University to do the study, and they're the ones that came up with the 3,000 figure. And that's actually one of the more conservative estimates because other studies are saying that the number is actually closer to 5,000 people that died. And understand that it's particularly disgusting what he's doing here because he's misrepresenting the study because he's saying, oh, well, you know, if old people died, they just add them to the list. But the reason why those old people, some of the old people, are counted in with that list is because they weren't just dying from old age. They were dying because they couldn't get access to healthcare or dialysis as a direct result of, say it with me, the hurricane. So I don't know how he can say that with a straight face. If he knows that they were adding old people to the numbers, then certainly he at least has a tangential understanding of the study to a degree, right? He disagree disagrees with the methods. But... Those methods are important because you have to add in what happened afterwards because hurricanes don't just come and cause destruction and kill a number of people and that's that. I mean, there are resulting consequences that kind of have this ripple effect after the disaster. So, of course, you have to include them, but this is Donald Trump. He's willing to erase the deaths of thousands of people simply to make himself look better, to save face. It's perhaps the most disgusting lie he's told yet. I mean, he's told literally thousands of lies since he's become president, but this has to be the most egregious one. I, I'm i honestly, like, shocked that he is this brazenly denying reality. And I shouldn't be shocked because this is Donald Trump, but it's just when people's lives are involved, when people die... This is this is more dirty and disgusting than just an average lie saying, you know, millions of people voted illegally in the election. That's that's grotesque, right? That is just fundamentally untrue. But to lie about people who died, there's something specially grotesque about that. It's disgusting. Now, the thing about Donald Trump here and his response is that Congress can take action. They can take action, they could investigate his response, they can make sure that there's an investigation so that way we learn from Puerto Rico and this doesn't happen again. 
but they have chosen largely to give Donald Trump a pass after he did nothing to help out Puerto Ricans. And when you compare Congress's response after Katrina to the response here that Donald Trump is getting, or the lack of response, so to speak, well, Donald Trump is getting a pretty sweet deal because as Danny Vinnick of Politico writes, after Hurricane Katrina crashed into the Gulf Coast in 2005, Congress sprang into action. 17 days after the storm made landfall, the Republican-led House created a bipartisan select committee to investigate the Bush administration's response to the storm. In the Senate, the committee with oversight over the Federal Emergency Management Agency held 22 hearings in six months. Within eight months, both committees had released 500-plus page investigations into the Bush administration's handling of the crisis with dozens of recommendations for reform. In the year since Hurricane Maria slammed into Puerto Rico, killing nearly 70% more people than Katrina, the GOP-led House has yet to create a select committee to oversee the Trump administration's recovery efforts. The Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, which oversees FEMA, has held just two hearings related to the storm. Neither the House nor the Senate have issued any major reports, and none appear to be in the works. The lack of congressional oversight is especially striking since serious questions remain unanswered about a hurricane that killed an estimated 2,975 people, according to researchers at George Washington University. President Donald Trump falsely claimed last week that the death count was inflated as part of a partisan Democratic attack, but with only limited oversight from Congress, disaster experts contend it is difficult to hold officials accountable for delayed responses last year to help FEMA learn from its mistakes or to provide a documented accounting of what happened in order to refute claims like the one in Trump's tweet. I mean, to say that this was a botched response is a misnomer because that would imply that there was any sort of response whatsoever. Donald Trump did nothing because he doesn't care about people in Puerto Rico, probably because he didn't realize that Puerto Ricans are American citizens. This is by far the most disgusting lie I think he's said yet. There's an international court in The Hague that was created in 2002 called the International Criminal Court, and this is what it's designated to do, according to BBC. Prosecute and bring to justice those responsible for the worst crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. The court has global jurisdiction. It is a court of last resort, intervening only when national authorities cannot or will not prosecute. Now, if you care about human rights, this court should be absolutely important to you. But with that being said, there are some fair criticisms of the court. Namely, it lacks teeth because it doesn't have a police force, so they can't arrest war criminals themselves in the event a country doesn't want to comply with the result of their investigation. Also, they receive funding from member countries, so in the event they pay too much attention to one country in particular and that country doesn't like that, they could potentially lose a significant source of funding. They've also been accused of being biased against Africa since they've only prosecuted leaders in Africa and no one from the West. But even with all of that being said, the court itself is still fundamentally important because we need that failsafe. If one country doesn't want to hold their officials accountable who committed atrocities, genocide, war crimes, then we need some type of international institution 
that can potentially hold them accountable. And certainly the court needs to be improved. It needs more power. But it's still important nonetheless, even if it's not perfect. So the question is, why hasn't the International Criminal Court prosecuted American war criminals? We have tons of them. George W. Bush, Dick Cheney. Well, the reason is because the United States is one of the few countries that has not signed on to the Rome Statute, which established the court, and as a result, the court doesn't have jurisdiction over us, and we don't recognize their authority. And the reason for this, as BBC explains, is during negotiations, the U.S. argued that its soldiers might be the subject of politically motivated or frivolous prosecutions. Various safeguards were introduced, and Bill Clinton did eventually sign the treaty in one of his last acts as president, but it was never ratified by Congress. The Bush administration was adamantly opposed to the court and to any dilution of U.S. sovereignty in criminal justice, and the U.S. threatened to pull its troops out of the U.N. force in Bosnia unless they were given immunity from prosecution by the ICC. Now, one of the reasons why a lot of people view the court as lacking teeth and lacking legitimacy overall internationally is because the United States chose not to sign on to it. But why did the U.S. not sign on to it? I think that's pretty obvious. Bush didn't want to join the ICC because he could literally himself be prosecuted, as could Dick Cheney. So, of course, He's not going to tie his hands and tie the U.S.'s hands to an international institution that could one day lock him up, right? So that's why he didn't want to join the ICC. But what about Obama? What was Obama's stance towards the International Criminal Court? Well, Obama also opted to not join the ICC, but... From time to time, he'd release these flowery statements saying, you know, that the U.S. would be willing to assist the ICC in certain investigations, and essentially, he was paying lip service to individuals that wanted the U.S. to join the court. But overall, he refused to join because, like Bush, he's another American leader that could very well be investigated and ultimately prosecuted. Look at the drone program that killed countless innocent civilians. That was ramped up by Obama unilaterally. So, there's this disincentive for American presidents to not join the court, because if they join the court, then they could very well be held accountable one day. Now, when we get to Donald Trump, I'm assuming that he probably had no idea about the court or even heard about the court prior to being elected, but his administration has certainly changed with regard to their position on the court, and not in a good way. And in a speech at the Federalist Society, National Security Advisor John Bolton actually threatened to prosecute international criminal court prosecutors in the United States and literally ban them from entering the United States. And I'm going to show you a video that kind of gives us a snapshot of this administration's hostility towards the court. In November of 2017, the ICC prosecutor requested authorization to investigate alleged war crimes committed by U.S. service members and intelligence professionals during the war in Afghanistan, an investigation neither Afghanistan nor any other state party to the Rome Statute requested. Literally any day now, the ICC may announce the start of a formal investigation against these American patriots who voluntarily signed on to go into harm's way to protect our nation, our homes, and our families in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. 
The ICC prosecutor has requested to investigate these Americans for alleged detainee abuse, and perhaps more, an utterly unfounded, unjustifiable investigation. Today, on the eve of September the 11th, I want to deliver a clear and unambiguous message on behalf of the President of the United States. The United States will use any means necessary to protect our citizens and those of our allies from unjust prosecution by this illegitimate court. We will not cooperate with the ICC. We will provide no assistance to the ICC and we certainly will not join the ICC. We will let the ICC die on its own. After all, for all intents and purposes, the ICC is already dead to us. For all intents and purposes, the ICC is already dead to us. Wow. So, obviously, we're not going to be joining the ICC so long as Donald Trump is president, right? But what's going on? Why is John Bolton so hostile towards the court? Well, he referenced Afghanistan. And as The Intercept's Murtaza Hussein explains, recent statements from the Trump administration suggest that the United States is now preparing to go to war against the ICC itself, motivated largely by an effort to silence investigations into alleged American war crimes committed in Afghanistan, as well as alleged crimes committed by Israel during the 2014 war in the Gaza Strip because it involves U.S. officials themselves at the center of the campaign against the ICC, is a 2016 report by ICC prosecutors that deals in part with the war in Afghanistan. That report alleges the commission of widespread crimes by the Taliban and Afghan government forces, but the report also makes allegations of serious crimes committed by U.S. military forces and the CIA, including torture, outrages upon personal dignity, and rape. The crimes in question appear to have been related to detention programs run in Afghanistan during the early years of the U.S. occupation. While the report does not name the individuals responsible nor the victims, it indicates that there are dozens of cases in which torture, cruel treatment, and sexual assault were committed by American soldiers and CIA officers in Afghanistan from 2003 to 2004. The report also states that the alleged crimes were not the abuses of a few isolated individuals, adding that there is a reasonable basis to believe that alleged crimes were committed in furtherance of a policy or policies aimed at eliciting information through the use of interrogation techniques involving cruel or violent methods which would support U.S. objectives in the conflict in Afghanistan. Given long-standing U.S. refusals to cooperate with ICC investigations, it's unlikely that the 2016 document, a preliminary report from the prosecutor's office, would have succeeded in bringing U.S. officials to trial at The Hague. Bolton's campaign thus seems intended on solidifying the fact that the United States is free of international norms on human rights conduct with those who even investigate its actions subject to threat. So, make no mistake about it, John Bolton is sending a very clear message to the rest of the world. The United States is above the law. We are allowed to go into any country we want, torture individuals, kill innocent civilians, commit genocide, rape, and if you so much as mention it, 
mentioned the possibility that American soldiers and CIA officials may be culpable, legally, and guilty. We're going to attack you and threaten you. In other words, the United States is above the law. We can do anything we want, and there's not a goddamn thing that you can do about it. And John Bolton knows that really the ICC can't do anything about it. And not only are they saying, we're not going to cooperate, they're saying, if any of your ICC prosecutors come to the U.S., we're going to hold you legally responsible. We're going to prosecute you. But also, at the same time, as they openly are hostile towards the ICC, what do they say? Oh, well, the United States cares about human rights. It's a joke at this point. It's, it, it's a complete joke. It couldn't be further from the truth. If anything, the United States is openly hostile towards anyone that protects human rights because actions speak louder than words. We might say we care about human rights, but of course we don't. Now, why is John Bolton so personally offended at the prospect of the ICC investigating war crimes that the United States committed? Because, of course, he could also, like Obama, like Bush, like Dick Cheney, he could be prosecuted by the ICC. And also, you know, he wants wars with pretty much every other country. So in the event he gets his wish and he gets Donald Trump to invade Iran or North Korea, well, he doesn't want to make sure that his hands are tied and that he can commit as much war crimes as possible and never have to worry about legal, legal uh, consequences. So make no mistake about it. This is all about self-preservation. The United States leaders... They don't want to sign on to the ICC because they don't want to be responsible themselves. So, I mean, anyone who does this, they can't continue to say that they care about human rights with a straight face because it's, it's a complete and utter joke at this point. MILF porn aficionado and tonsil stone eater Ted Cruz has stooped to a new low, even for him, in an effort to raise money for his campaign. He is sending out mailers, and he's trying to scam people out of money. So as Sean Owen states in a tweet, received this from my 88-year-old grandma, says it's a summons from Travis County, but is actually asking for money for Ted Cruz. Did your campaign authorize this? Is this even legal? Shame on you. That's one more Beto O'Rourke voter. And he also followed up by saying, some have asked what's inside. It's a quite normal campaign fundraising letter and this form. Still, a summons and asking for an affirmation signature, but no mention anymore of Travis County. Hmm. And more clearly, about campaign donation. So this is the snail mail equivalent of clickbait because he's doing everything he possibly can to make sure that whoever receives this opens the letter. Except I think it's probably worse than clickbait because clickbait just kind of dupes you into clicking on a video. This actually can scare people into opening up this envelope, which is a different level of disgustingness, right? And this really gets even more egregious when you think about the fact that he's probably hoping that someone probably older, above the age of 80, will think that they have actually been summoned and not really understand what this letter means and possibly send him money as the letter requests, expecting that this would fulfill whatever the summons was. I mean, he's banking on ignorance here. That's what he's doing. And this really is a new low, even for Ted Cruz, because he's the scummiest scumbag, perhaps in Washington, D.C., maybe 
almost on the level of Donald Trump. So for more details on this, we go to Nicole Goodkind of Newsweek, who explains, mailers of this kind are not illegal as long as they include a clear disclaimer that the communication was paid for. A Cruz campaign official told Newsweek that they had only seen a few anecdotal complaints from confused people. Everyone else the campaign said knew it was a campaign mailer. This is not the first time Cruz has sent misleading mail to voters. In the 2016 presidential primaries, the Cruz campaign sent Iowa voters a letter that read, Voting Violation in red font. Below, the warning was an explanation. You are receiving this election notice because of low expected voter turnout in your area, it read. Your individual voting history as well as your neighbors are public record. Their scores are published below and many of them will see your score as well. Caucus on Monday to improve your score and please encourage your neighbors to caucus as well. A follow-up notice may be issued following Monday's caucuses. I mean, that's just despicable. It's despicable and he does this and is essentially shooting himself in the foot because obviously people are going to see this, people who probably even support Ted Cruz and get pissed off by it because it's so sleazy and it's going to come back to bite him in the ass. Now, there's articles being written about how he's doing this and it's disgusting. So, I mean, I, I don't get why he did it, but it just shows that he's desperate. He needs and wants money because if you look at fundraising, Beto O'Rourke is nearly raising as much as him and Beto does not take corporate PAC money. So that is an incredible feat by Beto. And also he's now, or he was at least, polling within the margin of error from Ted Cruz. And there was an Emerson poll that showed Beto was just one point behind Ted Cruz. However, there was a poll released on Tuesday by Quinnipiac that showed Beto was actually more like 10 points behind Ted Cruz. So certainly there's work to do, but Beto is within striking distance and Ted Cruz knows this and they're probably scrambling. And I'm guessing that internal polling from Ted Cruz doesn't look too great as well, which is why he's probably freaking out and he's agreeing to actually debate Beto O'Rourke, which is really surprising. So Beto is not perfect, but compared to Ted Cruz, I said last week I'd vote for a potato over him. That still stands. I would vote for a literal potato to fulfill that seat in the Senate um, over Ted Cruz because Beto is Beto was actually a phenomenal candidate. He's a great progressive. Um, well, I, you know what? I'm not going to call him a progressive because he refuses to co-sponsor HR 676. He claims he likes Bernie Bill Bernie's bill more, which. HR 676 is actually superior to Bernie's bill. So I'm a little bit pissed off. I think that his reasoning for not supporting Medicare for all is disingenuous, but him not taking corporate PAC money, that's important because not being dependent on corporate donors shows that he he has the capacity to at least listen and improve, right? Because if you're just bought off, I'm not even going to bother with you because clearly you're just going to listen to your corporate donors. But Beto, I think that he has the potential to be a phenomenal progressive. So um, he's a great candidate. I hope that he beats Ted Cruz. I would love to see that. I think that all of us, even if we're not super thrilled with Beto or Beto, however you say his name, because he isn't co-sponsoring HR 676, it's still, I mean, to, to defeat Ted Cruz would be so amazing because it's Ted Cruz loathed universally by just everyone in America and potentially around the world. So this is really a disgusting new low for Ted Cruz, and he should be ashamed of himself, but he's not because, I mean, look at the things he's done. He's liked porn on his public account. He ate a tonsil stone on live TV. It's just, this guy is the epitome of Washington 
disgustingness and I just hate him. <laughs> I don't know how else to say I, I hate him. Blair White is a right-wing political commentator on YouTube who is a Trump supporter, from my understanding, and she recently made a video detailing why she's deciding to move away from politically-oriented content, and in this video, she made some relatively explosive, albeit unsurprising, accusations against other right-wing YouTubers. So, she says that there's a number of reasons as to why she's choosing to no longer make political content. She said, quote, political commentary has effed up her life. So the reason why, one of the reasons why she wants to stop making this type of content is because she claims that she's been harassed, threatened, and doxxed. And another reason that she wants to stop is because individuals within her circle, right-wing Trump-supporting circles, she says that other political commentators like her are phonies. I moved to LA almost a year ago. And one thing about LA is there's a lot of work here. So a lot of other political commentators, other people who you guys know, I'm not talking about obscure people here. A lot of them either live in LA or they're constantly in and out for work, filming something, doing whatever they do. Um, so I've met almost all of them. People I've either been on their show or on a show with them, or I went to a dinner with them, an event with them, or I became close with some of them. The amount of them that I've met that have told me either directly or in a roundabout way that's very clear, um, that they don't believe everything that they say that they believe when they're on camera. A lot of them just flat out don't believe. <laughs> they're just actors. They're just actors. I don't know how else to put it. I had one person who I went on their show and um, and I was in the green room, which is like the makeup room before you go on camera. The host of the show comes in and it's like, hey Blair, you know, small talk. Hey Blair, I wanted you on for a while. So glad you're here. Nice to meet you. Let's take a picture, blah, blah, blah. They pull me aside and say, I just want you to know, Blair, I don't feel any negative way towards you or trans people. I know we talk negatively of trans people a lot on the show, but that's just because it's kind of what the fans want. But it's just kind of where we're at right now. And I was taken aback because I felt like that's really fraudulent that you would feel the need to go on air and say something negative about trans people or transgenderism or whatever, but it's not really how you feel. He also said he has like a trans cousin or something like that. And that um, he feels bad that they're the butt of every joke on his show or whatever. And I was like, but almost every person I met after him was almost always consistently like that. Because you start learning things like, oh, almost all of them hire people to tweet and Facebook posts and Instagram on their behalf, tweeting out opinions on their behalf. Which I feel like is unethical because if people are following you because they believe you're some intellectual and they trust your opinion and they're gonna shape their opinions a lot of times on an issue based on your opinion and it's not even actually your opinion, it's something that you paid someone um, to assume is your opinion and, and you're so much of a rigid like binary thinker that it's easy just to pay someone like yeah tweet out the standard response and this is what it is it's like i don't respect that and i don't really know what it is about me in particular that makes people feel comfortable enough to sort of reveal to me that um you know they don't believe all the things that they say they believe on camera i'm not talking about small things either you guys i'm talking about like huge principal positions i'm talking about like the kind of stuff that a lot of you guys follow these people for, they don't even actually believe. Like, it's just crazy. So everything she says confirms what I suspected all along, but nonetheless, it's still a pretty big deal. So she says they don't believe what they say on camera. They espouse transphobic bigotry to pander to their audience. Uh, they pay people to tweet for them and whatnot. 
In other words, they're all a bunch of hucksters. Now, the reason why I suspected this about a lot of right-wing political commentators on YouTube is because their arguments are so bad that I don't know how they believe their own bullshit. And you have individuals like Dave Rubin, like Candace Owens, who had this sudden transformation, what, within the span of a year or two, and all of a sudden they're right-wingers and they're espousing all the same right-wing talking points once they receive funding from the Koch brothers and learn Liberty and Turning Point USA. I mean, it's it's obvious that these people are frauds. Um, now, she didn't name names, and I probably shouldn't speculate, but of course, that's what I'm going to do. So, how is this not Dave Rubin? <laughs> the first person that came to my mind as she was explaining this was Dave Rubin. I mean, he was liberal. He left TYT, slowly but surely made this transition, started taking money from the Koch brothers, and then he changed like that. How is this not Dave Rubin? I mean, I don't know who else to suspect. I don't really suspect Ben Shapiro because he's always been a right-wing hack, but Dave Rubin, certainly. I don't believe he believes anything that comes out of his mouth. I think he's just pandering to his audience. So Dave Rubin is certainly one of them. I don't know who else, but I mean, certainly, I think that it's easy to see why people are such hucksters given the climate on YouTube because before it never was the case that right-wing YouTubers would be very successful on YouTube. And Kyle Kalinske has talked about this before. If you were a right-winger, if you were conservative, you would pretty much be laughed out of the room. But now all of a sudden with the rise of Donald Trump in the 2016 election, well, right-wingers learned how to shitpost and they learned what memes are. And all of a sudden it's pretty cool and popular to be a right-winger. And suddenly some liberal and moderate YouTubers are espousing right-wing talking points and claiming to be conservative and are claiming that they changed and that they evolved and that they've become more moderate in their political views. So anyone who had a recent change since 2016, they're full of shit. They're full of shit. And that should be painfully obvious because currently... With this modern YouTube climate, it is more lucrative to be a right-winger. That's just a fact. There are more right-wingers who are rising than there are liberals right now. I think that liberals on YouTube, we're still doing okay, but I think that the market itself, if you will, is relatively stagnant. If you are a right-winger, you can skyrocket and get thousands upon thousands of not just subscribers, but clicks. So anyone... <laughs> who has had a recent change, they don't believe their own bullshit, anyone. And there's other individuals out there who are lesser known that had a sudden change. Understand, they're full of shit too. I'm not going to name names myself because I don't have to, but you all know who I'm talking about. People who are very pro-Bernie, who are all of a sudden pro-Trump. Now, Blair didn't stop there because she actually did reveal a bit more about right-wing political commentators. And specifically, I found this interesting because I've talked about the right-wing victim complex, but she talks about how they specifically and disingenuously try to perpetuate that victim narrative on the right. And this is what they do in particular. Months ago, I was gearing up to do a tour, which never happened because the tour company completely screwed me over. Um, but regardless, uh, I had started promoing it and someone who's very prominent in the social political commentary sphere hit me up and you know what this person told me? They told me plant fake protesters outside of your event. Not only that, they said make fake signs 
because you're probably gonna get protesters, but you wanna amp the numbers. This person instructed me to, me, myself, or my team and myself, make signs saying things that were super, super ridiculous to put outside and bulk up the numbers of people who may protest at my events. And it made me sick because clearly this person has done that. And this is someone who, although is hated by many, is also loved by many. And the many who love him believe that all those people were real. It's just such, I just, I know too much about these people. I mean, a lot of these people were on the complete opposite end of the political spectrum just a couple years ago, publicly, before the money started flowing on the other side. And that makes me uncomfortable, not because people can't change or have an awakening or, um, you know, everyone changes their opinions on certain things, but, but you realize that it's not actually a change of opinion that's organic and real when you meet them and you see for yourself. Wow. I mean, again, this isn't anything that's like world changing to me um, because I kind of suspected this, right? My bullshit meter was always going off, you know, whenever I see individuals like Dave Rubin speak and whatnot, but they literally are planting protesters at their speaking gigs in order to further this intolerant left narrative. And she claims multiple people allegedly do this. And it's just a thing. Why aren't you doing this, Blair? I mean, look, I'll say this. The caveat is that I can't vouch for her credibility because I honestly wasn't too familiar with her work. I mean, I've heard of Blair White. I've seen her on the Rubin Report debating Candace Owens. I, like, I've, I've heard of her, right? So I don't know about her credibility, but I do believe her here because this isn't that surprising. It's not something that is hard to believe at all. If you have common sense, you can see there's a lot of bullshitters who recently decided to evolve because that's that's where the market's going on YouTube. For me, I mean, as a gay man, if I decided to suddenly come out and be a Trump supporter, I would be more famous than ever. I'd have more subscribers and money than ever. But you see, the thing that's more important to me than, uh, you know, views and clicks and money is principle and actually being able to live with myself and sleep at night. That's more important to me. But there are some individuals who they don't really have a driving principle. They are specifically on YouTube and they're motivated by views and clicks. That's it. They just want to get famous. They don't care about policy outcomes. And one point that Kyle makes that is such a good point, Kyle Collins gives Secular Talk, is that he says for individuals who flip and go from liberal to conservative and who have done that recently, how can you suddenly say, okay, for all the policies that there are, 35 to 50 different policies that liberals and conservatives disagree on, how can you suddenly, with the flip of a switch, be in favor of all those 35 policies? It doesn't make any sense, right? How can you change your mind on everything? You'd have to be full of shit. I mean, at a minimum, a reasonable person might just, you know, change when it comes to one or two policies. Like, we're starting to see a lot of Republicans and right-wingers come around to the idea of Medicare for all, but every other liberal issue, you know, regulation and whatnot, they're not on board with. But that's more reasonable. That's more organic. But for someone to just all of a sudden change their opinion on everything, and you hear Dave Rubin arguing that deregulation of the free market is the best bet after he was liberal and worked for TYT... I mean, they're so full of shit. And if people don't see that, if you're attending the rallies of these people and you believe in these people, 
I feel sorry for you because there are so many people that want to profit off of politics right now because the climate is so volatile. And really, I disrespect these people because they're making it worse, right? They're trying to frame the left as intolerant when really that's projection, but it's just it's strategy for them. They don't give a fuck about policy. They don't care about the country. Though They're willing to hurt the country in order to benefit themselves personally. And I, I just, I don't know how these people sleep at night. I really don't. So if you know of anyone that suddenly became a Trump supporter after 2016, your bullshit detector should be going crazy. There should be all the red flags in the world because they're full of shit. And, I, you know, again, I'll say it again. This isn't surprising, but what Blair Wright is saying, it's just, <laughs> there's multiple people like that. So definitely, I think she's probably talking about Dave Rubin. Um, Candace Owens has to be one, although I don't know that she's friends with Candace Owens. But, I mean, to talk bad about trans people, not just, you know, saying that about Dave Rubin, but in general, to, to pretend to hate trans people when you like trans people and you have a trans cousin, as she was talking about with one of the anecdotes, there's a certain level of just disgustingness to that that I can't overcome. It's just so morally reprehensible to throw an entire community under a bus because you want to pander to your audience. It's just unbelievable. So, you know, what she's saying here is I think really important and I'm surprised that this isn't getting getting more attention because it's it's pretty big. So another unarmed black man was killed in America. Again, but this time he was killed in his own apartment. Your own personal space. Somebody came in and took your life. It's just disgusting and depressing. Now, a really grotesque trend that we see happen, besides the crime itself, of course, is that the victims are almost always smeared at the behest of the murderer. So, for example, surveillance footage was released of Mike Brown. Uh, Trayvon Martin was called a thug, and there were photographs of him released uh, smoking and things like that. You know, they're, they're painted as criminals and drug users in an attempt to make their untimely deaths seem more justifiable. But if you thought, well, you know, in this situation, there's no way that local law officials and media outlets can smear this individual. I mean, he was in his own apartment. Think again, because they did. As Fox 4 tweets out, Search warrant, marijuana found in Botham John's apartment after deadly shooting. So, the circumstances don't matter. They don't matter. No matter how evident it is that this murder was unjustifiable, they're still going to smear the victim who did nothing wrong. He was in his own apartment So for those of you who haven't been keeping up with this story, I do want to give you the rundown. 
because Vox, specifically PR Lockhart, gave a really comprehensive summary of what's been going on. So, Botham Shemjohn, a black man, was in his own apartment in Dallas last Thursday when Amber Geiger, his downstairs neighbor and an off-duty police officer, shot him inside his own apartment. One week after the shooting, those are the only details that are certain. Everything else remains a mystery. John was not accused or suspected of any crime. Geiger, a four-year veteran of the Dallas Police Department, says the shooting was an accident, the tragic culmination of a series of missed warning signs that revolve around a mistaken belief that she was in her own apartment. According to Geiger's account, when she arrived home to the Southside Flats apartments on September 6th, she didn't realize she had gotten out on the wrong floor of her building and that the apartment she was in was not in fact hers. Seeing a large silhouette in the dark apartment, Apartment, she said she thought she was being burglarized, so she shot, hitting John in the chest. When she turned on the lights in the apartment, she realized her mistake, CNN reported. The family of the 26-year-old John disputes this, arguing that Geiger's story doesn't add up. And for the past week, new details in the case have only added to the confusion, raising more and more questions about what happened that night and why John, a St. Lucia native who moved to Dallas after graduating from school, was killed in his own home. With the public disclosure that investigators found marijuana in John's apartment, his family members say law enforcement is waging a smear campaign to find justification in a killing where so many questions have remained unanswered. The details of the shooting are almost hard to believe. The handling of the case so far has left community members and John's family frustrated and concerned that his death will become the latest instance of a police officer being allowed to fatally shoot an unarmed black man and face no repercussions. Yes, yeah, so to say that her story doesn't add up is an understatement because it makes no sense whatsoever. If that's not your apartment, how do you get in? Well, she claims the door was open, so she decided to go in. And this, again, her account conflicts with what witnesses say. So efforts to understand what happened have been complicated by variations in official police documents on the case. According to the September 7th search warrant issued to collect evidence in John's apartment, Dallas officers said that Geiger, unaware that she was on the building's fourth floor instead of its third, attempted to enter the apartment with her key when John opened his front door. A neighbor stated he heard an exchange of words immediately followed by at least two gunshots, the warrant noted. This account suggests John was shot at his front door, but the details of a September 9th arrest affidavit filed after Geiger turned herself into police are quite different. That affidavit says John was actually shot farther in his apartment. In that account, which was written after an interview with Geiger, the officer returned home after her shift, unaware of the floor she was on, and attempted to use an electronic key to open the apartment front door. However, the door was slightly ajar and the force of using her key pushed the door open open despite the fact that her key did not open the lock. Now, the witness who claims to have heard the knocking heard her yelling, let me in. So, somebody's lying here. And it's probably the individual who is trying to cover her own ass. Now, since this happened, she has been arrested and charged with manslaughter. But this kind of goes to show you that if you are a black American, now, you know, you you might not just be shot and killed if you're unarmed by driving while being black or by walking down the street while being black. But now you could be shot and killed in your own goddamn apartment. It's a point that the author makes in this article and it's it's too important to not echo here. 
there's no safe places if you're a black American. You could be shot and killed regardless if you're just in your own home. To say that we need criminal justice reform and sensitivity training for police officers is the understatement of the century because things like this should not happen. They don't happen unless you have a criminal justice system that is fundamentally broken and in an effort to make the cop look better, they tried to smear Botham John and claim that he had marijuana. But what's interesting about that, besides it just being grotesque, is that the initial headline that we saw from Fox 4 didn't even point out that investigators actually found a bunch of stuff in the apartment that belonged to Geiger. So to say that they found marijuana on John, one, well, you can't even confirm that it's his, but two, the more important point is that it doesn't matter if he had marijuana. He's in his own apartment. Americans smoke weed. Get over it. It's not a big deal. It's not a bombshell. So shame on Fox 4. This is absolutely disgusting. That misleading headline is fundamentally despicable. And it's everything that we loathe about sensationalist journalism in this country. It's, it's grotesque. Who cares if he was high and smoking pot when she barged into his apartment. Who cares? That doesn't matter. It's his apartment. That's his home. I don't want to just talk about this because I think his mother really said it best because in a press conference, she talked about just how despicable this smear really was against her son. The information received yesterday is to me worse than the call that I got on the morning of Friday, September 7th. To have my son smeared in such a way I think shows that there are persons who are really nasty, who are really dirty, and are going to cover up for the devil, Amber Geiger. I don't know my son to be involved in such. And I want to find out whether the toxicology reports on, I, I, on Amber has been released, because she was the murderer. That's right. I want to find out whether her apartment has been searched, whether her car has been searched, and also on the Saturday when we spoke to the Texas Ranger, he was saying that there was no reason in his mind that she ought to have been locked up. That's right. The so there, were, there was enough time for three days that she roamed the streets after committing such a crime. So far, my family and I have only been asking for a fair hearing for my son. We have also been asking the community to engage in peaceful protest. But if information like that will come out to tarnish my son's reputation in his death, I will not sit back and see that justice does not prevail. That's right. It is time that we recognize that lives matter. That's right. My son's life matters. Right. At 26 years old, he had done so much. So if you extrapolate what he could have done, had he reached my age, then you would have seen how much I have lost. So I'm calling on the Dallas officials 
whether it be the DA's office, I don't know the Dallas system, but whoever it is, please come clean. Give me justice for my son because he does not deserve what he got. Thank you. I mean, I, I like, I don't know what to say. This is one of the stories that kind of leaves me speechless, right? Because what do you even say? This was so, so arbitrary and unjust. And if this is going to be another instance where the officer gets off, then essentially they can literally do anything and get away with it. They can kill an unarmed black American in any circumstance and not, and get away with it if they can certainly kill someone in their own apartment. I mean, look at Philando Castile. Told the officer he has a gun and then the officer trying to kill him anyway. Millions of Americans own guns. It's legal. There's a Second Amendment. Republicans claim to care about this, right? But black person, law-abiding citizen, owned a gun, shot and killed by a police officer. And that's just one of dozens of cases that have been gripping the headlines for the last couple of years. And I mean, I don't know what to say. It's so disgusting. What do you tell black youth in America who see stories like this, who see how there's absolutely no respect and how... Police officers can kill unarmed black Americans with impunity. What do you tell youth who see this? What message does this send to them? It tells them that their lives are not important, that their lives don't matter. Which is why the Black Lives Matter movement is so crucial and fundamentally important. This is, this is just heartbreaking. I don't, I don't know what else to say. And I really, really feel horrible for his mother because i couldn't imagine you know what that would be like if this happened to someone i knew this happened to her son he was in his apartment the safest place for anyone and he was shot and killed So as you all know, a couple of weeks ago, we had a massive victory in the fight to save net neutrality when California passed the strongest net neutrality protections in the nation. Now, Ajit Pai recently had a speaking event and he decided to comment on California's net neutrality law. And when I say comment, I mean attack because someone who has no credibility whatsoever decided to denounce this law as if we gave any shits about what he had to say, but nonetheless, this is what he said. As John Brodkin of Ars Tactica explains, California's attempt to enforce net neutrality rules is illegal and poses a risk to the rest of the country, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai said in a speech on Friday. Pai derided what he called nanny state California legislators and said, the broader problem is that California's micromanagement poses a risk to the rest of the country. After all, broadband is an interstate service. Internet traffic doesn't recognize state lines. It follows that only the federal government can set regulatory policy in this area. For if individual states like California regulate the internet, this will directly impact citizens in other states. Among other reasons, this is why efforts like California's are illegal. In fact, just last week, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit reaffirmed the well-established law that state regulation of information services is preempted by federal law. Last December, the FCC made clear that broadband is just such an information service. Okay, so first of all, the case that he cites there, it's not clear that that's even 
similar to what he's talking about here. If anything, it's only tangentially related. So, as usual, he's being disingenuous and deceitful, but his main objection to this is that, well, if you, if you are going to pass this law in California, then there's going to be one state in California, and then one state in Ohio, and then internet service providers are going to have to adhere to different regulations across state lines. Right. Which is why we had nationwide net neutrality, and there is just one set of rules that apply to all ISPs until, who was it again? Who decided to repeal those laws? Oh, right, that was you. So you're the one who catalyzed this. And understand that what he's making here is an argument at the behest of ISPs, because part of the reason why they're so aggressively lobbying against state laws that solidify net neutrality is because they don't want to have to adhere to different sets of standards across state lines. They just want one set of rules, preferably to not have net neutrality in any state. But because they're doing that now, that makes it a little bit more difficult for them because they have to hire more lawyers and more lobbyists, and it's just a big headache. So he's making an argument specifically at their behest, shamelessly so, as if we're not going to notice what he's doing and who his argument would benefit. I mean, this guy is such a brazen shill. It's just laughable. Now, what I love, though, is that almost immediately after he condemned this bill, the bill's author, Scott Wiener, spoke out and he kind of took some pretty hard shots at Ajit Pai. So John Brodkin continues here saying, Pai's remarks drew an immediate rebuke from California Senator Scott Wiener, who authored the net neutrality bill that passed California's legislature and now awaits the signature of Governor Jerry Brown. California's net neutrality rules are necessary and legal because Chairman Pai abdicated his responsibility to ensure an open internet, Wiener said in a press release. Unlike Pai's FCC, California isn't run by the big telecom and cable companies. Wiener also said, Pi can take whatever pot shots at California he wants. The reality is that California is the world's innovation capital, and unlike the crony capitalism promoted by the Trump administration, California understands exactly what it takes to foster an open innovation economy with a level playing field. Wiener also criticized Pi for remaining silent on Verizon's recent throttling of Santa Clara County firefighters while they fought the state's largest ever wildfire. When Verizon was caught throttling the data connection of a wildfire fighting crew in California, Chairman Pai said nothing and did nothing, Wiener said. That silence says far more than his words today. Damn. So that was, uh, <laughs> that was great. That was a good response from, uh, from Wiener here. Because Ajit Pai, he can't speak out you know, against what Verizon did in throttling the uh, Santa Clara County firefighters because what did he tell us before he repealed net neutrality? All of these concerns that proponents of net neutrality are bringing to light, you know, it's just, it's bullshit, right? He didn't say that. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But he said that we were being alarmist and that all of our concerns were unfounded because these internet service providers would never do anything to violate net neutrality. Now, of course, that's a really stupid argument to make because they've been spending millions of dollars every single year to lobby against that neutrality to get the FCC to do what GPI did. So obviously, if they want these regulations repealed, they're not just going to have it repealed and then rest easy. They're going to take advantage of that repeal. So of course, it's going to be the case that they are going to do this anti-competitive, anti-consumer practices that they lobbied for. But the reason why Ajit Pai can't speak out against that instance is because, 
Well, I mean, it makes him look like shit. Because these firefighters who were throttled by Verizon when they were fighting a fire and using their service from Verizon to fight the fire, well, they can't do anything. There's, there's no legal recourse for them. And that's specifically because Ajit Pai did that. Now, I love that, um, what's the exact quote? Scott Wiener basically said that Ajit Pai was a shill. He called him a shill in not so many words. He said, unlike Pai's FCC, California isn't run by big telecom and cable companies. Shots fired. That's basically calling Ajit Pai a shill in not so many words. And it shouldn't be controversial for anyone to call Ajit Pai a shill because he is literally the biggest shill, perhaps, in all of Washington, D.C. He's definitely the biggest shill in the history of the FCC. But, I mean... This guy is specifically there to serve internet service providers like Verizon, Comcast, and AT&T. So the fact that he even has the audacity to speak out against California here, it's it's really just, it's not surprising, right? But it's so disgusting because he should be hiding his face whenever anyone brings up net neutrality because we're all still angry at his decision to unilaterally kill net neutrality. I mean, he had his cronies, you know, Mike O'Reilly and Brendan Carr, but this was still something that he spearheaded and he said he was going to do. So the country is still angry because he decided to do away with something that Americans overwhelmingly approve of in both parties. This has bipartisan support. Net neutrality is something that is universally loved by Democrats, by Republicans, liberals, conservatives, independents alike. But yet he decided that what the telecoms want, that should override the will of the people. And now, when legislators actually do the right thing and do what the people want in their state, he condemns them for it. Ajit, shut the fuck up. Nobody cares what you have to say. Nobody, except for Verizon, maybe. But even they don't care because you're just their useful idiot and they're controlling you, so they don't even care what you have to say either. A study conducted by Northeastern University and the University of Massachusetts Amherst just confirmed our worst fears about net neutrality. That internet service providers like Verizon and AT&T, they're already throttling their competitors a mere, what, five months after the death of net neutrality? Unbelievable. So as Bloomberg's Olga Karif reports, the researchers used a smartphone app called Weehe, downloaded by about 100,000 consumers, to monitor which mobile services are being throttled when and by whom in what likely is the single largest running study of its kind. Among U.S. wireless carriers, YouTube is the number one target of throttling, where data speeds are slowed, according to the data. Netflix Inc.'s video streaming service, Amazon com inc's prime video and nbc sports app have been degraded in similar ways according to david choffness one of the study's authors who developed the wehe app from january through early may the app detected differentiation by verizon communications more than 11,100 times according to the study this is when a type of traffic on a network is treated differently than other types of traffic most of this activity is throttling AT&T did this 8,398 times, and it was spotted almost 3,900 times on the network of T-Mobile and 339 times on Sprint Corporation's network, the study found. The numbers are partly influenced by the size of the networks and user bases. C-Spire, a smaller privately held wireless operator, had the fewest instances of differentiation among U.S. providers, while Verizon had the most. 
Carriers say they're throttling to manage internet traffic to deliver the videos people want to watch on their phones. Sacrifices in speed are required, according to the three largest U.S. wireless companies, Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile. Terms of service agreements tell customers when speeds will be slowed, like when they exceed data allotments, and people probably don't notice because the video still streams at DVD quality levels. If you want high-definition video, you can pay more, the carriers say. Now, an important thing to note about this is that throttling, it didn't just start happening after the repeal of net neutrality went into effect. Throttling has been happening for years now. It's just the difference is that internet service providers, they're not just throttling the totality of your internet service. They're picking and choosing which uh, websites like YouTube and Amazon Prime Video that they want to throttle. So that's the key difference here. Now they're able to discriminate against certain websites that they don't like, specifically websites that are their competitors. And certainly all of these companies like Verizon, AT&T, they all have their own video streaming services. So by targeting Netflix and Amazon and even YouTube, they are targeting their competitors. This is anti-consumer, anti-competitive conduct that Ajit Pai assured us would not happen after he repealed net neutrality. And lo and behold, would you look at that, not even six months after the repeal, it's already happening. So they're doing exactly what we expected them to do and what we said that they'd do. And since the FCC was defanged and they can no longer do anything about this since they don't have the administrative authority to punish these companies that do this, since Ajit Pai and his cronies repealed that neutrality, obviously, there's literally nothing that we can be uh, we can be doing about this currently. They can uh, throttle YouTube out in the open now, brazenly so, and we can't do a goddamn thing about it. Now, theoretically speaking, this shouldn't be surprising. Like, we shouldn't be surprised at the fact that Verizon and AT&T are throttling companies that pose a competitive threat to them, like YouTube and Netflix. But I am admittedly surprised that it's happening this quickly, because I thought that they'd be a lot more subtle about it and do it slower, seeing that a lot of people are still engaged when it comes to this issue of net neutrality. But they've proven me wrong. They're that shameless that they are willing to already throttle their competitors. And of course, they're going to come up with this bullshit excuse because they're not even going to deny it anymore before they just deny it out outright. Now they're just saying, oh yeah, we're, we're throttling, but people know about that. It's so that way we can deliver them, you know, better internet and uh, better quality content. I mean, it's just, it's bullshit. It's all bullshit. And I'm wondering if the individuals like Ajit Pai and even political commentators who spoke about this, like Ben Shapiro, are going to come out and apologize for calling those of us concerned about net neutrality alarmists now that we're seeing the consequences of it. And again, I have to remind you that this is only the beginning. These efforts to throttle YouTube and Netflix, this is just the beginning. It's a slow rollout. It's still sooner than I expected, right? And more subtle than I expected at this point. But it's still, this is, this is the beginning. So imagine five, ten years down the line, when we've all stopped talking about net neutrality, what it's going to look like, what the internet will look like, if we're already seeing changes now and throttling now. I mean, the worst case scenario is slowly but surely encroaching where they section off portions of the internet and sell us internet packages because they're going to say this is better for consumers. 
It's great that Comcast disaggregates the internet and sells us a social media package for $5 because then your grandma, you know, she's not going to use the rest of the internet. So why can't she just pay $24.99 a month for a social media package? So that way, you know, she can communicate with you. That's going to be the argument. And it's going to be basically the status quo to where if you question that, you're the one who looks insane. So we just, I don't even know. I mean, I usually end these videos with some type of action initiative and tell you call your legislator you know um petition for local municipal broadband which is certainly important but there's just so much money on the other side that i don't know if we can win this battle feasibly speaking but certainly municipal broadband i think is the future if we are going to save the internet and have net neutrality established so you know it's just very depressing news but this is what was intended to happen. These companies didn't spend millions of dollars lobbying Congress and politicians to repeal net neutrality to just do nothing after it was repealed. You know, they got the policy that they wanted and now they're going to capitalize on it. Okay, so we're going to have to file this video under segments on the Humanist Report I thought I would never be doing because Bill Maher gave the Democratic Party advice and it wasn't terrible. It was actually kind of good surprisingly now of course it wasn't perfect this isn't you know outstanding political commentary from bill maher in fact i think it's kind of common sense but after going in that neoliberal hacky elitist direction to see a segment like this it's a breath of fresh air and again i can't believe i'm saying this about bill maher but nonetheless we'll watch and then uh, talk about it afterwards and finally, new role. Someone has to tell me why all the best voices speaking out against Republicans are Republicans. Nicole Wallace, Steve Schmidt, Rick Wilson, George Will, Brett Stevens, Joe Scarborough, Richard Painter, Michael Steele, Jennifer Rubin, David Jolly, Anna Navarro, Max Boot, David Frum. They're the ones who are out there with the gloves off, landing head punches. Even Trump's own people tear him down better than any Democrat. McMaster called him a dope. <laughs> Mattis, a fifth grader. Steve Mnuch, idiot. <laughs> Reince Priebus, idiot. John Kelly, fucking idiot. <laughs> Rex Tillerson, fucking moron. <laughs> Gary Cohen, dumb as shit. <laughs> Where are our potty mouths? The midterms are 52 days away, and we know what the Republicans are going to be running on. Socialism. You can't vote for Democrats because they're socialists, and socialism is a work camp in Siberia. <laughs> and one thing Republicans are really good at is they get in a room together, they come up with a line of bullshit, and they all repeat it over and over and over until even Tommy Lyron can do it. <laughs> This year, they even taught it to Trump. And they want to raid Medicare to pay for socialism. <laughs> he really puts the moron in oxymoron, doesn't he? <laughs> remember, remember back in 2009, the teabagger at the town hall who shouted, keep your government hands off my Medicare. Well, that dummy is now president. 
But I still don't hear Democrats explaining that Medicare is socialism, and so are the other super popular programs like Social Security and the ban on denying coverage for pre-existing conditions. Trump just gave farmers a $12 billion bailout to make up for his stupid tariffs. We took tax money from some people, mostly in New York and California, <laughs> and gave it to fucking farmers. <laughs> I mean farmers. <laughs> That's socialism. Socialism is the reason you don't have to bring your own highway when you want to drive somewhere. <laughs> It's why there's a fire department to show up when your burning Nike spread to the house. <laughs> the U.S. military does more socialism by 9 a.m. than Venezuela does all day. We build weapons that even the Pentagon says it doesn't want. That's a jobs program. Socialism. You're soaking in it. Even Trump voters like their government goodies. So why can't Democrats all get in a room and come out with a single answer to the scary socialism charge? This is the attack on us. And Democrats' response is, I would say crickets, but crickets make some noise. <laughs> like... There is a wholly compromised Russian asset in the White House. You can't make a little political hay out of that. He's not on our side. That's so hard. So that wasn't too bad, right? I mean, he started off a little rocky. He then did a really great job. And then towards the end, he just completely fell off a cliff. <laughs> so he first states that Democrats, generally speaking, they do not do a good job at speaking out against the Republicans and combating right-wing rhetoric. I completely agree with that. I don't think they do a sufficient job, but he's wrong in saying that right-wingers are better at speaking out against Republicans and Donald Trump, and he cites individuals like Anna Navarro, Steve Schmidt, Max Boot, and David Frum, and he suggests that the Democrats could learn a thing or two about these individuals, but let me tell you this. These are not resistors, Bill. These are grifters. Know the difference. They care about one thing and one thing only. That is civility. If Donald Trump breaks decorum, then they're all over his ass. But if he passes tax cuts for the rich... If he deregulates Wall Street and industries, they don't care. So they like the policy substance. They just don't like the mean tweets that Donald Trump does. That's not a very effective way to challenge Donald Trump because they don't care about substance. They're superficially against Donald Trump and policy is everything. So if you agree with the policy, does it really matter if Donald Trump is mean if he attacks other Republicans, if he calls Marco little Marco, I mean, it, it doesn't matter. So they are not a good template. But I, I will admit, I liked when he listed off the comments that 
individuals within Trump's administration said about Donald Trump calling him an idiot and whatnot. I think that that was pretty funny. But this is where he precisely started to nail it for me. He said, the midterms are 52 days away and we know what the Republicans are going to be running on. Socialism couldn't agree more. And he correctly says one thing Republicans are really good at is they get in a room together, they come up with a line of bullshit, and they all repeat it over and over until even Tommy Lauren can do it. That is so true. So true. And I shouldn't even have to, you know, give him credit for saying something that's so painfully obvious, because if you're a political commentator, this should be common sense to you. So the idea is if Republicans can do this all the time, why can't Democrats do that? Exactly. That's exactly the point. If Democrats got on board with Medicare for all, legalizing marijuana, do you know how popular they would be? They would be unstoppable. They would be unstoppable. But why don't they do this? This is the question that Bill Maher poses. Now, he doesn't take it a step further and say the reason why they don't do this is because donors X, Y, and Z. He doesn't go there, which I would have loved. But nonetheless, he's on the right track. And he says this is how he thinks Democrats should respond to Republicans fear-mongering over socialism. I still don't hear Democrats explaining that Medicare is socialism and so are the other super popular programs like Social Security and the ban on denying coverage for pre-existing conditions. And he then goes on to talk about publicly funded roads and the fire department. And here's my favorite part here. Quote, the U.S. military does more socialism by 9 a.m. than Venezuela does all day. Bill, I don't know what's happening, but... Stay on this track. You're on the right track. This is exactly the advice that Democrats need to hear. And I think the reason why I feel inclined to give Bill Maher credit here is because he actually is someone who neoliberal, corporatist, centrist Democrats listen to. They're on his show all the time. So if he says that, I think that his words carry weight, which is why it's so important. But Towards the end there, I don't know what happened. He kind of veered off on this tangent to where he started suggesting that Democrats would do better um, if they also talked about how Donald Trump was a traitor and how he's a Russian puppet. And look, they're already doing that, Bill. So I don't know what more you expect from them with regard to that. But that's bad advice. You stay glued to the policy. And he kind of got back on track and he cited how, you know, uh, Dianne Feinstein said that Donald Trump has the potential to be a good president and he's probably going to serve at his full term and whatnot. And that's correct. Democrats do a horrible job at resisting Donald Trump. In fact, we've now started calling them the assistants because that's what they do. They assist Republicans. You see Tammy Duckworth calling Donald Trump cadet bone spurs on the Senate floor, but just weeks prior, she voted to give him more powers to spy on Americans without a warrant. Democrats will vote with Republicans to deregulate Wall Street. They'll vote to increase the military budget. Even Elizabeth Warren voted for that. Without question. So certainly, Democrats don't know how to resist Donald Trump. And one really important part of resisting comes to the rhetoric that they use, but certainly they also have to resist when it comes to action as well, because what he's really talking about here is talking the talk, and certainly they don't know how to do that, but 
they do have to walk the walk as well. And I feel as if progressives are having to hold their hands to get them to walk the walk as if they're like a toddler who's learning how to walk when we shouldn't have to do that. I mean, these are individuals who claim to be policy wonks. They claim to be, you know, in tune with the American people, but they're, they're not. But to Bill Maher's broader point that, you know, Democrats, they shouldn't run away from socialism and they should embrace it and not cower in fear anytime a Republican brings up that word. That's, that's an excellent point. That's exactly correct. My one caveat is that I don't think they should go out of their way to invoke any particular ism, be it socialism or capitalism. I think that they should just try to stay focused on policy exclusively. But I do agree with Bill Maher's point that if Republicans do invoke that word, socialism, Democrats shouldn't run away from it. So, I mean, overall, even though there were some errors, you know, with his judgment here, this was the first really strong segment I've seen from Bill Maher, I think, in years. Now, I'll be honest, I just watched the YouTube clip, so I didn't see the full show. So maybe he said something really fucked up in the other segments. <laughs> it's very possible, right? But this is what Democrats really need to hear, which is why I was so glad and quite frankly relieved to hear someone in mainstream news circles say it. So Bill, stay on this track because this is the right track for Democrats. You've got a little bit more you know, work to do and a little bit more to learn, but this is what I want to see from someone who I used to really respect a long time ago. After his victory last Thursday over progressive challenger Cynthia Nixon, Andrew Cuomo decided to do exactly what Hillary Clinton did in 2016. Give all the people you need for the general election the middle finger. Because he decided to gloat about his victory and he also said some really interesting things that belittled the progressive movement. Now, by comparing what he's doing to Hillary Clinton, I don't think that this is going to cost him the general because New York is a very, very blue state. But you still shouldn't push voters away that you need to come out and support you. That's a horrible strategy. But nonetheless, he's kind of doing that here. So, as Aaron Durkin of The Guardian reports, New York's Democratic governor Andrew Cuomo has said the so-called insurgent progressive wave in his party is not even a ripple, arguing that it's pragmatists like him who can get things done who are the true progressives. Cuomo, a two-term Democratic incumbent on Thursday, defeated challenger Cynthia Nixon by a 30-point margin, turning back the latest attempt by a newcomer from the left to unseat a Democrat favored by the establishment. The governor, viewed as a potential 2020 presidential contender, used a victory lap press conference on Friday to make a forceful case for his own vision of the party. I'm not a socialist. I'm not 25 years old. I'm not a newcomer, he told reporters at his Manhattan office. But I am a progressive, and I deliver progressive results. Cuomo was fighting back against another narrative that has taken hold in the party, that the upset win by New York's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a Democratic socialist who knocked off the powerful representative Joe Crowley, set off a domino effect in primaries around the country, including upset wins by progressives running for governor in Georgia and Florida and for a congressional seat in Massachusetts. Where was that effect yesterday? Where was it? Cuomo asked. Instead, he said the win by Ocasio-Cortez in Queens in June was merely a fluke explained by the timing of the vote, which resulted in low turnout. The statewide primary this week, by contrast, saw a spike in turnout and Cuomo bragged that he got more primary votes than any governor in history 
history. That is a wave, he said, on the numbers, not on some Twitter sphere dialogue where I tweet you, you tweet me, and between the two of us, we think we have a wave. We're not even a ripple. Now, what I find interesting is that throughout all of that diatribe, he claimed to be a progressive while simultaneously was denouncing and shitting all over the progressive movement. So, this was kind of him spitting in the faces of all the progressives that came out to vote for Cynthia Nixon. If you didn't already know, if you were one of the maybe three people in the country that didn't know that this guy was full of shit, this should settle it for you once and for all. Andrew Cuomo is full of shit, and as the governor, you shouldn't really boast about winning, especially given all of the voter suppression that continues to go on in New York, which always happens to hurt progressives. So, in 2016, if you'll recall, more than 100,000 voters were purged from the voting rolls, and this time, prominent progressives vocalized the problems that they were having. Michael Sonato claims that his girlfriend wasn't able to vote because they said she wasn't registered as a Democrat, and they wouldn't even give her a provisional ballot. And then you had Namiki Konst say that she was also excluded from the rolls, and she was given a provisional ballot. And there were other individuals that cited similar stories, but the problem with provisional ballots as Tom Hartman explains, is that over 95% of provisional ballots are never counted. Provisional ballots were created by George W. Bush's Help America Vote Act in 2002, which handed billions of dollars to the states to buy electronic voting machines. If you get one, fight it. So, I mean, I don't see how you can gloat about the results if all of this voter suppression is going on in your state, Andrew. Republicans... They always do a lot of voter suppression out in the open, right? They do these racist voter ID laws that disproportionately affect people of color. And Democrats rightfully fight them on that. But Democrats themselves do nothing to fight voter suppression that harms progressives in their own party. And it's because it's one of those instances where they only care about something when it affects them. So if Andrew Cuomo somehow lost, which I doubt that would happen, but if he lost to a Republican, he would probably um, blame voter suppression in the event he was running in a different race where gerrymandering or voter ID laws were uh, something that was required to vote because that would hurt him against the Republican. And if he chooses to run for president, that may very well hurt him. But in spite of all these issues, I do want to address some things here because he claims that, you know, it was a sweep. There were no progressive victories, but that's actually being disingenuous because even though we lost some really big races, I mean, Cynthia Nixon, Zephyr Teachout, they lost. And that sucks, right? Jemaine Williams was another one. But what he's not talking about is that the IDC was wiped out in New York. Progressives defeated the most conservative Democrats in the state. And we're seeing this trend kind of around the country that at more local races, progressives tend to do a lot better at the state level, at the municipal level. You know, when progressives run for city council and state legislatures, they tend to do a lot better if they're challenging incumbents. So, with that being said, though, it's still very difficult for us to primary corporate Democrats at the national level. And there is a grain of truth to what he's saying with regard to them not being successful. Although I think it's bullshit to say that Ocasio-Cortez's victory was a fluke. I think she just did a better job. She outworked the competition, as she puts it. I think that's true. So, with that being said, though, he is correct when it comes to, by and large, most of the attempts 
to primary corporate Democrats have largely failed. That's the underlying implication of what he's saying here. And he's not wrong. He's just an asshole. <laughs> but here's, here's the thing about this that we have to keep in mind. First of all, incumbents always have an advantage because voters, by and large, are risk-averse. They're almost always willing to go with who they know as opposed to someone who they don't know because unpredictability is something that voters and self-interested self individuals in general just don't like, so they try to avoid it. So that's, that's one thing, right? Just being an incumbent is a huge advantage. Second of all, there's always going to be that disadvantage when it comes to money because since progressives don't take corporate PAC money, since they're being principled, they're put at a disadvantage because their opponent, the corporate Democrat, can then raise millions of dollars, outspend their progressive challengers 10 to 1, maybe 20 to 1, you know, in certain circumstances, and just crush them. Yeah, that's not too surprising because studies show time and again that the candidate with the most money in most instances is going to be victorious. And it seems like the higher you get, the harder it is to beat that incumbent because anyone like Paula Jean Swearingen, um, Carrie Evelyn Harris, who challenged senators, that was a lot more difficult. So it's easier for progressives to win at the local level, city council, state government. It's a lot more easier to primary corporate Democrats there. Additionally, name recognition is super, super important. This is something that I found to be really successful with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a lot of people in her district said that they couldn't go anywhere without seeing her face and her name on a flyer in a store. Local businesses all had her flyers up. This is something that's really important. It's a strategy that I think that more individuals should utilize going forward um, because getting that name recognition out there is so fundamentally important because these candidates also don't have media coverage most of the time. So, Name recognition does a lot. That's also part of it. Another part of it is, um, another takeaway really, is that corporate Democrats, even if they know they're going to win and they have the advantage, they despise being primaried, which gives us all the more reason to continue primarying them. Because so long as they are being primaried, their feet is being held to the fire, right? It'd be better if they lost, but their feet's still being held to the fire. And that's really important. So, I mean, at the end of the day, 2018 and these primaries... This was a great learning experience for progressives. This is the first time the progressive movement has been put to the test. And we did a lot better at the local level than we did at the national level. That's obvious. If you look at our revolution, uh, I think about half of the candidates they endorsed ended up winning. And that's because they endorse candidates at all levels, as opposed to organizations like Brand New Congress and Justice Democrats that only endorses at the national level, as far as I know. Um, but... We we need to take what happened in 2018 in these primaries and learn what we can do to improve our odds going into 2020. First, we got to make sure that we beat Republicans, at least take back one house in Congress. That way we can handcuff Donald Trump and Republicans can't get any of their insidious, disgusting bills through. Um, and second, we really need to hit the ground running in 2020. And if you're feeling discouraged about 2018, I think that our odds might improve in 2020 if it is the case that Bernie Sanders is able to successfully make it through a Democratic primary. Because if he's at the top of the ticket, we already know that Bernie Sanders generates a lot of enthusiasm. So hopefully that could, that could help progressives. Hopefully he will endorse some progressives who are primary and corporate Democrats. 
who chose not to endorse him, right? Because if they're not going to endorse him, if they're going to endorse someone like Joe Biden, Cory Booker, or Kamala Harris, fuck him. So hopefully he'll see that and he will only endorse progressive primary challengers. But certainly we need to not be discouraged by the results because they were mixed to shitty for progressives. We need to try to dissect what happened and learn from it so that way we can improve our odds uh, in the future because I think that what we're doing is still worthwhile and I'm certainly not going to give up. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. I hope you enjoyed the show. Um, Before we leave, as usual, I want to send a special thank you to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors. You guys are absolutely amazing and you help this show not just to survive but thrive as well and i repeat that every single week to the point where it's pretty much becoming a meme but it's so true you guys are absolutely crucial and without you this would be my reaction (laughs) so anyways i will see you all next week uh have a great day take care